0: Welcome to the first Canadian version of Don't Sell Yourself Short, the silent sales podcast. It was my pleasure to speak with Brendan, the founder of Master Talk, a YouTube channel he started to help the world master the art of public speaking and communication. He coaches purpose-driven entrepreneurs on how to master their message and share their ideas with the world. You'll hear Brendan deliver an improvised presentation and he'll also demonstrate that introverts make some of the most compelling public speakers in the world. Brendan also talks about the podcast which has the most amazing introduction, so rather than try to compete I'm going to take a leaf out of Eddie Izzard's book and leave the audience with a slightly disappointed feeling as I conclude that this is the end of the beginning. Welcome to Brendan, thanks for joining us.
1: Thanks for having me Sam, it's good to be here.
0: Oh, you're welcome and um, this is my uh, only my second, um, if you like, transatlantic uh, podcast uh, as you're joining us from uh, Montreal and before we get properly started I'm interested in podcasts you might listen to, particularly Canadian or whether you do um, listen to things from further afield. If you enlighten us on how podcasts uh, have infiltrated your life I'd be interested to hear.
1: Yeah, of course. I'm a podcast uh, alcoholic in many ways, I guess. I guess like, what do they call it? Podcastaholic? I think that's a good way of putting it. Yeah, no, I listen to a bunch. I would say a couple that stand out to me. Lewis House's School of Greatness, Seth Godin's Akimbo, as well as Tom Bilyeu's Impact Theory. So I'm very big on uh, on those types of shows, and I watch a lot of those.
0: What's the, what's the Impact Theory one about, then? If you, I've never actually heard that one.
1: Yeah, Tom Billy. If you've heard of Lewis's show, it's very similar to Lewis's show. It's just in in Lewis's case, what happens is Lewis is more focused on. Lewis is more focused on this idea of how do you master interviews, and that's how Tom does it as well. I think what's interesting about Tom is the way that he does introductions. He's probably one of the best people I've seen in the world do introductions for their guests.
0: Okay, what what is it about those intros that are so good?
1: Yeah, that's a great question. So, for example, uh, when Gary Vaynerchuk was on the show. Uh, Gary just looked at him and he said that was like the best intro ever. He kind of what he does essentially, he spends a couple of hours just making the intro. So he gets he gets research teams like to figure out everything about that person's life and then mes- mentions every single accomplishment that they've done, <laughs> and it's uh, it's very insane. So the first pers- so the the reason Tom does that by the way, it's really smart. I find is because he does the intro so well, the guest knows that this is not a regular show that they're on and they don't talk about their lifestyle and focus on new content that they didn't talk about before.
0: Right, okay. And, it, and I suppose if, um, if your intro blows enough smoke around people, shall we say, then uh, it probably sets them at ease and uh, massages, massages their ego a little bit and um, makes them feel really good about themselves. That's absolutely correct. <laughs> I'll, send you, I'll send you the link after the podcast. Yes, please. No, that's great. That's great. Okay, well, we're going to focus, as you know, this uh, podcast has, um, some might say, a loose thread uh, about the sales profession throughout. And what we're going to slightly focus on today is uh, your mastery of public speaking and broadcasting, um, which is an integral part, really, of a good salesperson's job and marketeer. And a lot more jobs now where content's being created both online, um, you know, and uh, on the likes of podcasts or radios or whatever it, radio stations, whatever it might be. So it's becoming an even more important skill. Um, so I'm going to start really with I'm going to start with fear. <laughs> what a lovely place to start. Um, <laughs> I, there's common reasons that you probably hear for people um, being fearful of public speaking. What What are the things that tend to crop up?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So, so this idea of fear that we have with public speaking is definitely a common one. And I think the reason why it comes about most of the time, and it makes sense, is we see public speaking as a chore, Simon. So let's say you think about all the presentations you've given in your life. Most of those presentations were in school and were mandatory. We don't wake up one morning and say, hey, Simon, you want to get breakfast and present all day? <coughs> Nobody says that except maybe me and like three other people in the world. It's just not a thing. So we're in high school, we're in college, we're in university, and three things happen. One, we never get to pick the topic, and if we do, it's generally something we're not passionate about. Two, students generally don't care to listen to us, not because they don't care about us. We're great people. The issue is that they have to present 10 minutes after you do. So they're not paying attention to you. They're, paying, they're worried about their own damn presentation. Mm. And then three, teachers are very well-educated, very well-intentioned, but also very stressed. If you've got 70 students in a classroom, how are you supposed to coach each one individually on their presentation skills? And that's the point. That's why you've been conditioned to believe that public speaking is supposed to be this bad, mundane, chore-esque task, when in reality it should be used for the exact same reason that you're using it right now, that I'm using it right now, which is to make a difference and share an idea that matters to people who need to hear
0: it. Fascinating, okay, yeah, so there's that, um, as, as the population grows and school systems, I don't know what it's like in Canada, but in the UK, a sort of uh, breaking at the seams in terms of larger classrooms, uh, maybe university, not so much, but certainly in, in, in our, what we call primary schools and uh, secondary schools, where the, the classes are huge i mean um, one of my kids goes to a school where there's um, you know there's 90, 90 children and and you just think i mean when i went to school and that was a while ago longer than i'd like to admit um you know our, our our school was actually quite big and that was a class of 28 and that was seen as a lot you know in order to get around people who maybe need help and encouragement and uh I, you know I'm, I'm interested because a lot of children seem to be sort of let's say fearful of, of speaking out if you like and um i mean is this would you say that that reluctance essentially is a is, is a learned behavior or, or conditioned in, in, in what you've seen
1: absolutely like just to give you an idea my most successful client simon is six years old wow you know you know she's better than her dad who is one of my executive clients but i think the idea is the reason she's great is yes, yeah, she's talented, she's amazing. That's all true. But the real truth is her perception of public speaking is different from every other kid in her classroom. So let, let me give you another example to demonstrate this. Julia's 13 years old. She loves theater, but she's an introvert. Why is that? Right, if you think about it, not everyone in theater can be an extrovert. That just doesn't make sense. There's just millions of people in theater. There's bound to be some shy people who enjoy this. So why do they? The answer is because when Julia looks at theater, she doesn't perceive it as a presentation. She doesn't perceive it as a school chore. She perceives it as a way to entertain, to make people laugh, to make people feel different emotions. And she sees herself as the vehicle to to those emotions to help people uh, feel better about themselves and about the show. So that's the key, is how do we change the perception of people who are fearful of public speaking as a way to use that same vehicle to make a difference, because let's face it, presentations are only a small component of what communication is. Simon, as you probably know, mm. communication is everything. It's the way that you communicate to your kids. It's the way that you communicate to your your family. It's the way that you handle hard conversation. It's the long dinners you have with your friends. It is every single interaction of every single day, and that's why I'm very passionate about this skill.
0: Mm. I was um. I was speaking with a previous guest, Julie Pravino, who's an um, international HR guru, shall we say. And um, we touched on a, a topic which you can probably enlighten us further on, I guess, in terms of the way that people... makes me, It's going to make me sound old now again, I think. I'll have to reword my questions. But um, people are, are choosing to communicate in different ways in, in the digital world, perhaps, than, than they used to. And, and obviously, in the world of Zoom, which we're using right now, it opens up the world. It shrinks. It shrinks the world, which is fantastic. But at the same, in the same time, when I've been running sales teams um, in the past, it's become more prevalent that when I, if I don't specifically ask a um, sales team per, a person of the sales team to, to to call or visit a customer, quite often the default is a email, um, and I see that um, with the younger generation in terms of the default means of communication being whatsapp or or an equivalent um do you think that that's essentially harming or changing the way that we communicate and essentially ebbing away our confidence in terms of public speaking or or am i am i linking two things that you know shouldn't be linked
1: (laughs) (laughs) so everyone's got their own opinion on this simon so i'll give you mine I like the second part of what you said about this idea of it's changing the way that we communicate. And that I absolutely agree with. So let me explain how. Social media, Zoom, the tool that we're using right now to talk to each other is a tool like any other. And depending on who we are, we can use that tool to amplify our communication skills or to detract from them heavily. The average isn't looking so great, but I would say the idea remains the same if you're someone who wants to master something, whether it's communication or cooking or anything, the world currently has an unlimited amount of information for you to have access to that wasn't the case literally 30 years ago, since you had to go through the same exact information through books for the most part anyways. Mm. So I think the way I see this is that if you use social media in the right way, It can help you in leaps and bounds so in my case yeah covid you know kind of reduced all (laughs) of my speaking engagements i didn't get to travel to the places i want to go to this year but that didn't stop me from meeting people i just joined online networking events and now i've been able to meet a lot more people than any event i could have ever attended Mm. just because it's a lot more efficient online since i don't have to travel and spend hours on a flight so there's always ways to, to figure out how to communicate better. It's just the rules of the game have changed.
0: Oh, I like that. So I just worry, maybe I'm a worrier at heart, but I just I suppose I'm concerned that it's easy or easier to hide behind um, a sanitized, uh, spell-checked, grammarly-checked um, email than it is to essentially risk risk it by having a conversation Uh, i said this to julie i mean you you don't know what i'm going to say next and i don't know what you're going to say next and and i believe that humans you know we we we're inherently programmed to be able to deal with that pressure um whereas the the, you know emailing a client or emailing a, a friend or texting a friend it's it has its benefits but it's it's not as risky is it
1: yeah there's definitely some part of that that's true And we're on the same page there. I think think the idea is we need to ensure, and this is true 50 years ago as it is today, to teach kids the proper way of how to communicate. What kind of tools out there can we use to help them out so that they can grow up to be great communicators? whether whether it's be email or just in-person interaction so i I give you an example one of the things people can easily implement like how did i get a six-year-old to to present so well i i think the the idea is simple that we don't do in the education system by the way is this idea of treating them like they're the same age as you so when when i we had our first call i just looked at her and i said. What topic do you care about? What do you want to present? And she just looked at me and said, I want to talk about my first day at school. And I said, sure, make a presentation on that. It's just phenomenal. Right, so we need to give that accountability back to the student instead of making them or force them to present the Renaissance or some random topic. Just say, what do you care about? What do you want to teach the group? And let's work on that one presentation together over the series of a couple of weeks or if not a couple of months. So you don't have to be stressed out about the content. You can just focus on delivering that content in a way that's magical and impactful. That's how you get the result. But that applies in a social media world equally as it is in a non-social media world before all of this stuff even started, if we just apply that curriculum to all the schools in the world, people would just be phenomenal communicators and start using social media as a tool rather than as a way to hide from the public.
0: Yeah, I like that. It's a, yeah, there's a there's a heavy focus on on the science side in the UK. You know, it's science, maths, and English, and everything else seems to fall secondary. And then. Like you say, um, public speaking or presentation skills um, don't even really feature. Um, So they're way down the pecking order, whereas actually in terms of life skills, you know, people always use algebra as uh, as an example, don't they? You know, the minute they leave school, they never use, 99% of us never use, use algebra again. But most of us will be in a position where, at the very least, we might have to do something like a speech at a wedding or a eulogy at a funeral or something like that. So you're going to be in that position.
1: Absolutely, like it's like you alluded to, and I completely agree with. So it's this idea that communication is going to play a huge part of your life, and if you start to perceive it in the right way, you start to take action on. You start to say, "Wow, you know, you're going to be an amazing communicator." That is how you move forward. And one question you can all ask yourselves to determine that is the following. How would the world change if you were an incredible speaker? If you're one of the best speakers in the world, how would that world change for you? And the answer for everybody will be different. Some people will go, oh, you know, I could be like a rock star. I could be a YouTuber. But a lot of people right, who understand that communication is everything will say something like, well, you know, 80% of the time I fight with my husband or my wife or my girlfriend or my boyfriend is never because of the person that is bad. It's always because we just don't understand each other. always leads to arguments. So if I just got better at communication, I would fight 80% less and enjoy life 80% more. So that's just a simple reason that I can give there as to why communication is vital. And there's thousands of examples like that. You just need to find the ones that work for you that motivate you to master
0: public speaking. So before you um, were locked down like the rest of us and restricted in terms of being able to travel, you you were traveling, like you say, doing speaker gigs and going to events and and, and the rest of it. And in in previous roles, I've traveled um, around the world and and been to a lot of different conferences in a lot of different industries and listened to plenary sessions and workshops and the rest of it. And I've noticed that um, depending on where I am in the world, um, the presentation styles can 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 differ i mean the the, the mainstay does tend to be powerpoint but the the um you know what what i might see when i say north america really i I do mean the usa in terms of a much more uh it's strange what i found is it's strange What, what i would expect when i was listening to people doing um talks from the usa is a much more bold uh, confident some might say brash presentation style whereas actually the style tended to be a lot more detail oriented than i than i expected um, which is the opposite in terms of the, the 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 adverts on tv that i see versus the more conservative adverts in the uk um, from a from your perspective and maybe a little bit of insight into into canada as well do you see that that styles of presentation do change sort of culturally and geographically or, or, you know, I'm sure there's some common threads, but I'd be interested to see what you've what you've uh, seen in your time.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Simon. What what I have noticed in the space is some part of what you're saying is definitely true in the sense that depending on where you're from, where you've been raised to, who, who are the people around you, the energy and how you show up and the way that you perceive public speaking is very different across cultures. So I'll give you some examples. Let's say in countries where public speaking curriculum isn't that emphasized. I I won't give any examples because I'm just not sure myself, but let's say, I don't know, you just take a random country and the education system doesn't really prioritize that or see it as important, then the population as a whole doesn't see it as important, which means they don't really take it super seriously. Whereas let's say you take a, a place like America or even Canada to a certain extent, where presentations like we have whole, whole competitions in Canada about presentations which i've competed in that 's how I learned presentations myself right. the way that we perceive presentations is very different because we're like wow we need to get really good at this thing really fast and it's going to help us a lot in life and it definitely was a, was a beacon of light to, to my career and to what I do now with master talk but I think the idea is depending on where you 're from how you 've been raised and what emphasis that that village, that city, that county, put on public speaking is how you'll generally perceive it.
0: Okay, I mean, sales has has always been a profession which you know needs, as I mentioned, needs a lot of public speaking. Well, generally, most salespeople do anyway, um, and it would be easy to think that that, that means it attracts uh, more extroverted people, you know, or maybe more you know more outgoing people. Um, But some of the best people i've known worked with and coached have actually been introverts um what can you sort of highlight some experiences you've had of introverts excelling in public speaking
1: oh yeah absolutely i make this whole i made this whole video on my youtube channel dispelling this idea that only extroverts are great speakers i've had similar experiences in public speaking where i noticed a lot of introverts were actually a lot better than a lot of the extroverts and I'm happy to name a couple of examples of that. Ooh. So there are three key advantages that introvert speakers have over extroverts, Simon. Number one, they're very good at pausing. So pauses are an effective way for us to make our presentations better. It's public speaking foundation. And someone who's an extrovert, like me, for example, took a long time to master this because I hate filling, not filling up word like spaces with words. So let's say I'm at an event and we're talking and there's a pause. I want to fill it up because I have an extra. It's like oh let's keep talking. Whereas an introvert spends more time in silence on average. So when I teach them silences they kind of just go, well I already knew that and I didn't know it applied to presentation but that makes sense to me. So it's much faster for the introvert to master that number two listening skills extroverts like me tend to talk a lot, hence why we're podcast guests, right? We, we blab, blah blab all the time, right? as you can tell. And you're kind of there as the introvert, like, man, Brandon, why is this guy going to stop talking? But I think the idea is because of that, it, it took me a long time to master my listening skills. It got better over the years, but it was definitely um, an uphill battle. But when you're an introvert, that's much easier. And because you're a better listener than I am, it's easier for you to tailor your message to the audience that you're speaking to. And then, of course, level three, I mean, number three, rather. Introverted speakers are by average almost always less polarizing than extroverted ones. And I'll give you two super simple examples to demonstrate this. The amazing Gary Vaynerchuk. So when you think about Gary's career, so for those who don't know, he's like the CEO's big media agency, very successful social media following and success and speaking career. The, the issue with Gary, and this is coming from me being one of his biggest fans is this idea that because he's an extroverted speaker he's very polarizing so one side of it is everybody loves scary he's amazing he changed my life and i'm one of those people and then the other side of it is i hate this guy this guy's too loud he's terrible like there's a huge part of the crowd or just the people in general who just don't like him or love love him but when you're a Brene brown Or a susan kane or a seth godin nobody goes up there on stage or goes up into videos on youtube and goes i hate seth godin i hate bernie brown i hate susan Kane. nobody says that introverted speakers are are much less polarizing which means they're generally more liked on average to the crowds that they speak to so what's the point of this whole rant the point simon is not that introverts are better or extroverts are better but rather the following question: are you willing to learn from the other? if you're an extrovert, are you willing to learn from the introvert or if you're an introvert, are you willing to learn from the extrovert and if you're willing to do that, you're always going to be ten steps ahead of anyone else who's trying to master the skill
0: that's fascinating. I appreciate that i i i I know for example you know I've seen you on YouTube, and as most children, my children are uh, Oh, they hardly watch TV anymore. They only really watch YouTube um, or, or Amazon Prime, or and anyway, it's on the YouTubers, they you know they watch gamers like a lot of a lot of children. And uh, one thing I'll notice uh, when my daughter, for example, will say, "Oh, come and watch this uh, YouTube video with me," and I'll and I'll watch it, and maybe it's twenty minutes long. And it'll part of this is due to the edit, but part of it is, isn't. They don't seem to pause for breath. That is and, and by the end of the well, before the end of the twenty minutes, my head hurts because it is constant, constant talking. Now, you know, I I'm naturally an introvert, I think. Um maybe that's part of part of that. But is that something that you've noticed? And and I mean I don't know whether it sort of jars with you because you're now, you know, a professional speaker where you'll you'll probably probably be constantly, or maybe subconsciously, um, critiquing anyone's sort of public appearance without even meaning to do it. Right, that's a fascinating question, Simon, in the sense that
1: YouTube's a bit unique in the sense that that's YouTube culture. So what I mean by YouTube culture is because the attention span is very small, people, and people can easily click out of your video, that's why what creators do, is even if they pause in between other videos, they edit those pauses out in the same way you would edit yours on this podcast. And then through that, it, it creates this 20 minutes of just nonstop talking to keep the, uh, your kids or the people who are watching engaged at all times. So they watch the video all the way through. So that's kind of the idea. So I, I think the general thought here is to understand the culture or rather the, the platform which you're presenting to and then adapting your own presentation styles to that platform.
0: Yeah, no, that's, that's interesting. So I, I've noticed the same. I mean, um, North American sports, you know, a little bit different um, than, than well, the European and certainly UK sports, you know, the, the, the biggest sport in the biggest two sports in the UK, you know, uh, football, soccer, football uh, and cricket. And the, years ago, well, not years ago, maybe 10, 15 years ago beyond the... The commentator you know, public speaker um, would only really comment when something probably extraordinary or you know out of the ordinary happened whereas now it's a much more what I would say Americanized style of commentary where they don't stop talking and it's <laughs> it, there's now an option on the uh, on the UK broadcasters where you can turn off the commentary because it's it people don't want to hear every single thing explained um you know it's as it's almost as if they're commentating for people who um are blind for example um whereas you do want that extra description of everything whereas most people i believe in that context like you said a different type of culture a sports culture do they need to know every single opinion of every single thing as it it happens um or, or perhaps it's closer to that youtube culture that you that you um describe Right. I think
1: a good way of thinking about this is it's all about how you prefer to absorb knowledge and from a speaker's perspective and the way the audience that you're trying to target is consuming knowledge. So think about what you mentioned with your kids. They're on YouTube, which is why I'm on YouTube for a reason. I noticed that a lot of the demographic for kids, your, you know, the kids that you're talking about between the ages of, let's say, nine and 20 they don't have access to communication tools on YouTube and on the platform. Everyone who's currently on it in my niche is above the age of 40 for the most part. So I looked at the space and I just said, well, I should be on this platform because I can be inspiring nine, 15, 17, 23 year olds to master communication because I'm in that age group. Right. So it just, it just made a lot more sense to me to follow that platform. So I think the idea is figure out who the audience is, figure out where they hang out what platforms they are and then jump on those platforms
0: Mm. and and ted talks has become um well it's it's grown a legs of its own and the ted talk x um sessions but what i do tend to find with with ted talks and it's not a criticism because i've um, watched some really great presentations and learned some things that i didn't even know i wanted to learn um in sales as well and in these ted talks i tend to see quite a lot of what i'd describe as formulaic delivery um and you know notwithstanding the message can be really interesting um i was taught well i mean i had quite a good mentor with with public speaking i'm not in your league but I, you know I, i'm relatively confident versus your, your general layman is that be yourself when you're presenting because it's not something that you can um, you know you, you can't keep up that persona unless you're an actor for 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 the course of a presentation and people will see through it is is that something that you advocate and and why does so many people seemingly go wrong with that approach
1: right no i i totally get what you're what you're trying to get here i think the idea with public speaking is most people make the mistake of doing the following simon if most people present one time every single time they give a presentation Let's say they have a presentation at work or something in general it's very hard for them to get better whereas the key to public speaking and what the best people in the world do is they only present one or two presentations but they do it hundreds of times let's take tony robbins as an example he's been presenting mindset how to change your life how to have positive growth in your life for 35 40 years if you went to one of his seminars and he came up to you and said hey simon you know i've been doing this mindset thing for so long You want to talk about porcupines this weekend you're going to look at him and say no tony i spent two thousand dollars to be here i want you to talk about everything that you talked about everyone else with because i want the same result there's an expectation that we have of the best speakers in the world we want them to present certain topics and we want them to do well in those topics but we don't bring that accountability back to us that's why my advice is present one topic do it extremely well And then the skills that you get from that presentation will trickle down into every presentation and everything that you do in communication.
0: Fantastic. Now I watched your video about uh, saying the word, "um." Now I just literally did it then and that wasn't on purpose. I know that that's something that I say when I'm pausing, thinking, trying to, it's almost like a holding pattern, um, a typical French, uh, you know, filling the gap. Now, I was fascinated by this because, um, and there it is again. What's the most common issue you see when you're helping people with their speaking techniques? Is is the um, or is that the most common, or are there others as well that are more prevalent?
1: Yeah, fillers is definitely one of them, Simon, but I would say the biggest mistake that can easily be fixed is how people practice their presentations, and I call this the puzzle method. So in many ways, puzzle, public speaking is a lot like a jigsaw puzzle. You know, those thousand piece puzzles you try and put together. So if I asked you, Simon, if you're doing a jigsaw puzzle with your family, your kids, the people around you, which pieces would you start with first and why?
0: Probably the corners. And the reason would be then you can work out from the corners, you know, the straight pieces after that around the edge. And then you're framing the uh, the rest of the and you're eliminating those first.
1: Exactly. So the question to ask yourself, Simon, is why don't we do that in public speaking? We have a presentation in two days. So what do we do? We shove a bunch of content in and we start with the middle pieces first. And then we get to the last slide and it sounds something like this. Uh, 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 yeah, so uh, thanks. That's 99% of all the presentation conclusions out there. So that's why I'm a big advocate of my puzzle method, which is think of it like a jigsaw puzzle. Start with the corner pieces. Start with the edges first. Practice your introduction 50 to 100 times. Practice your conclusion 50 to 100 times. And then tackle the middle. Why does this make more sense? It makes more sense because nobody who's listening to this call right now has done an introduction, the same one 50 times. So once they realize how great they actually are at speaking by doing two easy parts, which is a start and the end, they can just use those insights, that knowledge, those learnings into the middle. And much like a jigsaw puzzle, never work on it alone. That's boring, daunting, and not really fun. Do it with a group of people. Work as a team to tackle the middle. I never practice my presentations alone, even if I'm a professional today. So that's my advice.
0: Brilliant. Thank you. So I mentioned that in a previous role I had to deliver, well, I didn't have to, I chose to deliver technical papers to peers at their annual conferences. And, all right, the first ones that I ever did, you know, I was, uh, well, very, very, very nervous. You know, it affected my sleep. I was um, catastrophizing the worst case scenario, imagining myself turning up on the stage with no trousers on and just completely getting everything wrong but i mean whilst i get butterflies now my my biggest concern wasn't really the the presentation itself and, and it's still the case is that it's actually the questions and answers session that comes after it so um that tends to be my my main concern but i know people people are different and that's perhaps a control issue how do you deal with that in your talks Right, so there's a couple of
1: ways we can deal with that. So let's assume in the example you just gave that you're alone and you're not in a group and you're answering questions. Here's what you need to keep in mind. You can't control the questions that are being asked, but you can control how you answer them. And a good analogy I can give is press conferences with sports athletes or celebrities. You know, if you think about like big athletes like LeBron James or Kobe Bryant when he was alive, they get asked a bunch of questions. This is what I call a question flood. So you'll never have that. We're not famous or anything. So that situation doesn't happen to us, but it's always about learning from the harder side of the equation. So let's say Kobe gets asked, what, 20, 25, 30 questions from 30 different people at the same time. But notice how calm he is in those press conferences. The reason he's calm is because he controls the answer. And because there's so many people out there who are asking questions, the people who are who are there are not allowed to ask follow-up questions to leave room to everyone else. So you need to understand that you have the power, not them, right? And once you understand that you have the power, it's much easier for you to go, okay, well, I'm the expert. I've done my homework. I know what I'm talking about. So if there's a question I just don't know, I'll just say I don't know, or I'll expand to the best of my abilities But I'll try and answer as many as I can. And as long as my average comes out on top, people will still perceive me in the right way. The only mistake you can make in Q&A, as far as I'm concerned, is if you start to contradict yourself. As long as you don't contradict yourself, I don't see an issue. And here's another thing that I will add to the conversation in case people are nervous. Podcasting is the same thing. When you're on your first podcast, when you're doing your first presentation, you don't know your subject that well where you're like, okay, I'm an expert, but I don't know how to present it. I don't know how to communicate it well. But after you've done 200 presentations, 200 shows, and you know, a host is asking you, you know, I know, Brenda, you don't get this often, but what's your opinion of virtual presentations? Well, chances are we've probably got that question a lot, right? You know, at that point, it's probably like the 40th time we've been asked the question, which is a good thing, by the way, not a bad thing. Ooh. It means that now there's no question in our subject matter expertise that we can't answer. And that's the beauty of repetition on the same topic.
0: Couldn't agree more. I think that also uh, uh, there's a healthy level of butterflies, isn't there? I think that no matter how how many times you do something, um, particularly a live presentation, whereas we have the benefit here of if I if I was to accidentally, um, you know, drop an f bomb or, or inadvertently in, insult um, a whole country, <laughs> I have, <laughs> I have the beauty. Of uh, editing it out whereas if you drop drop those um, bombshells live then you've got to master the technique of digging yourself out of a hole or brushing over it which is something that actors learn on in the theatre where the show must go on sort of uh, approach absolutely completely agree um that's been fascinating. I think we could uh, we could talk more more and more about this, but um, I, I think probably I'd love to get you back on the podcast in a future episode if you'd be willing. But what I like to. End with, and like you said, I'm I'm got slightly nervous now because I've got I, I've got to sort of uh, master this end of this podcast. Otherwise, I'm gonna let, I'm gonna let you down and let me <laughs> I'm gonna let the listeners down. So I have I have quite a formulaic ending. To, uh, so that is me contradicting myself when I was having a go at TEDx speakers. In the, I like to ask my guests to give us give the listeners a little bit of a freebie um, in terms of a tip. Now you've already given some tips, which is fantastic. But in terms of what I'm thinking of in terms of selling yourself when you when you're presenting, I think that's important. So, what would your one tip be for uh, not just salespeople but anyone that's in a, a public speaking situation, particularly with their work? I think uh, what 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 one tip would you give them?
1: Right. So, I'll give you my my number one exercise that works in all of the technology executive clients that I use. It sounds childish, but it works because it's the harder thing to do, and I call it the random word exercise. So essentially, what you do every day for five minutes. It's the best way to to practice public speaking alone. You pick five random words or objects in your house and you create presentations out of thin air. And the reason why this exercise is effective is if you can present and talk about random words, when you go back to your subject matter expertise, those presentations suddenly become a joke. And of course, Simon, I'm happy to demonstrate this. Why don't you give me a word?
0: Oh, something, uh, something that I can see around me here. Okay, so uh, bizarrely, I've got a, a, a model dinosaur on, on the shelf in front of me. So what about a dinosaur? Sure,
1: that sounds interesting. All right, let's do it. So here's, here's what's going to happen. I'm going to do a presentation with the word dinosaur with no preparation. So here I go. For millennia, humans have ruled the world. But a long time ago, Before humans even existed, dinosaurs ruled the world. These big creatures that dominated planet Earth, that ran the cities, the villages, that probably didn't exist yet, and the world. Dinosaurs are ferocious creatures, and their extinction has a significant meaning to how we live today because even every great thing in our lives has an end date every great dynasty every great civilization every great dominance in the world and by understanding the end point we can start by imagining our start point so i encourage you all today from learning from all of the dinosaurs that came before us to think about your end point when you go extinct When your life is over, what are some of the things that you will accomplish in your life before time is up? And I'll leave that choice up to you. So there's a couple of things that I can go there. That was just complete random there. The first one. Love it. Thank you. The first one is don't compare yourself to me. I've done this exercise 2000 times. I literally have to do this on shows just to show that I'm credible, right? Two, all I'm asking for is five minutes of your day, not five hours, Not two hours, just five minutes. Pick five random words, five random presentations. And once again, I want to re-emphasize why this exercise matters. It doesn't matter because you could talk about nail polish for a minute. It matters because if you can do that, it's much easier to present the topic that you actually know something about.
0: So it's a little bit like uh, elite runners uh, training at altitude. So when they actually come to run the marathon, it's like they're running with uh, pure oxygen would that be a decent exactly
1: that that's an excellent analogy i completely agree
0: oh thank you well it's been fascinating i really enjoyed it really insightful i'll try and work on my ums um there we go there's one and uh, i really really appreciate you joining me thank you very much brendan thanks a lot Simon. it was great to be here